So, I've been living in the book of Joshua the last, I don't know, probably about four or five months. And I'm coming back to um, some thoughts I'd had before we even started Antioch, maybe about eight years ago. And when we started Antioch, I've always been a big fan of um, intern ministries. I've always been a big, I was a, when I got saved, I went and worked three summers as a camp counselor. And uh, that kind of gave me this realization that when you get away for three months or whatever it is, uh, and you're kind of on the mountaintop with other Christians working to, to try to disciple people, that it's kind of one of the greatest things that could happen to a college-age person, a single person, um, I think, to ground their faith. So we're already manipulating our daughter, Esther, um, to be a counselor at Mount Hermon. Um, we've, we've, in, we've really crafted it in such a way that, you guys saw the movie um, Inception? Yeah. I live there with my kids, right? <laughs> Ten layers deep, um, planting seeds, and they'll never know where it came from. But, uh, but yeah, we're already trying to get our daughters to go do that. And then uh, every time our daughters say, I can't wait to be an Antioch intern, we applaud that and we say, absolutely, um, because we really want them to have that season of life uh, where they really can explore their faith and go deeper in some of those ways. And what I began to realize the eight years ago thing was that we don't really get that opportunity as adults. Uh, life kind of takes us, uh, family takes us, career takes us. We don't really get that season. And so we had kind of cooked up this whole idea of having a, an adult intern kind of focused season, and we were going to call it the Jericho Project. And the Jericho Project never got off the ground. And so, um, so that's what this, it's, it's, it's getting off the ground today when you guys sign up for small groups. Um, but this is kind of the thinking of it. So I want to roll through it. And we're going to start in chapter 3. And, uh, and if you know the story here, we have got the Israelites who have been slaves in Egypt, and God has raised up Moses, and Moses has delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. So they've come, uh, they've come out, and they've been set free, but they get set free into this desert where they end up in this situation of learning what the law is, what God would require from, from them, what their job is in terms of covenant fidelity and obedience into that. And then they've wandered in that struggle or that wrestle with faith, the faith that would uh, mean you have to have manna every morning, but you can't, you can't collect that food or it'll go bad. So every day you're looking to God for your provision, learning to live by faith. And this goes on for a long period of time. And then we get to this point where Moses dies, and right when he dies, his successor, Joshua, God says, now we can move you into the promised land because that generation has passed. Joshua and Caleb, if you remember, were the two that had faith when the spies went out into the land, uh, the dozen folk, and they came back, and most of them said, hey, it's too tough. And, and Caleb and Joshua exhibited faith and said, what a great challenge, uh, and they were all up for it. And so God is now taking these guys that had the right kind of faith and he's going to begin to use them as the leaders moving his people into the promised land. So you have these three stages, the one of deliverance from slavery, the one of wandering in the desert, and now we're getting to this stage of entering into the promised land. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because I think in Christian teaching or in Christian history, 
we, we've always recognized, and, and it's borne out in Scripture, that this narrative of the, of the nation of Israel is an archetypal narrative of the life of faith. Meaning it's, it's symbolic not just for them and what they're going through, but God uses this story to point back to all throughout Scripture and, and writers and preachers all throughout history pick up on that, but that this is the story of all people of faith. This is the story in some sense of all individuals of being set free as, as captives or slaves to sin, brought out into this wandering and this understanding of what does this relationship look like? What does this covenant relationship uh, require of me? What does it mean to, to live into that with faith? And then after that period of time, um, there's this next section. But I find that we always talk about the first two, but never the third. That Egypt is a symbol, that the desert or desert wandering is a symbol. And I'm sure you've heard those phrases, right? Um, God talks about don't go back to Egypt. And, and these, are, these are things we talk about as symbolic, but somehow the story, the third part of the story of entering into the promised land gets left off. We don't, we don't grab hold of it as the third chapter of this um, symbolic narrative that has something to say for all believers in Christian communities. And I think that's sad because you're going to see that, that there's obviously symbolic elements that I think God is intending here to drive home a point of what it looks like when you move forward into life. So one of the most often asked questions is how do I take hold of the promises God has for me? How do I take hold of the promises? I feel like I was promised all these things when I became a Christian about joy and, and meaning and purpose. How do I take hold of that? How do I get this inheritance that I'm supposed to have as the son of God? Another way of putting it is, how do I get to find God's will for my life? How do I get to walk into the calling that he would have for me? How do I get to to go forward and be more than a conqueror. Does that make sense? Does anyone here this morning not hunger for the answer to those questions or the resolution to the uncertainty with regard to those questions? And that's what we're getting at. And we begin with the crossing of the Jordan, the first of five symbolic things that happen with the nation of Israel that are also symbolic for us as we move forward as Christians. The first one is the crossing of the Jordan, chapter 3. So they're on this side of the Jordan River, which means they're technically desert side. They're not yet promised land side. And so this is the symbolic barrier. And what we have to begin to realize is if you are going to take hold of God's will for your life, God's calling for your life, God's promises for your life, your future, a lot of it hinges on God's timing for those things in your life. That we don't just walk up to the Jordan River and cross it when we want to or when we feel ready or on our timing. That in some sense we have to wait and hunger and pray, be willing to do anything because the first thing that needs to happen is God has to give us permission and to call us forward into this process of laying hold of his future for us. And that's what happens. So God says you're going to have the... You're going to have the priests go down, and I'm going to just read um, a big chunk of Scripture here, and I'm going to do it fast, and you can follow along. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
So early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out, and they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. And after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. The first thing we have to kind of realize is the ark of the covenant is symbolic for the presence of God. These two things are God's presence, God being with the Israelites, is wrapped up in the imagery and the reality of the ark of the covenant. So this is tantamount to saying As you see the ark go, as God goes before you, then you follow. But keep your distance because this is no casual thing. This is the presence of God and the holiness of God. And Joshua told the people, now consecrate yourselves again because of the holiness. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. And so they took it up and they went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Now tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. And Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you all those in the land. See, The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. And then as we continue down, the priests go into the water, the water stop, they're standing on dry ground. And all of Israel now passes through the Jordan and into the promised land. And in chapter 4, verse 4, we see this. So now Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. Now these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now the beginning of chapter 4, God had commanded this. This isn't just uh, Joshua's idea. But God begins this process and he says, I will go first in my timing. And the water stops and the people follow. And he says, now stop for just a second. I want you to send 12 guys into the middle of the river. I think sometimes when we talk about memorial stones, it's like we grab like a couple little stones, you know, and put them together and say, this is some kind of a a ritualistic spiritual thing. The 12 men that went into the river carried out stones on their shoulders. I mean, this is a... This is a big, visual, symbolic thing of piling up these stones on the other side of the Jordan. And God says, I want you to stop here. I want you to kind of go back into the the dry ground of the riverbed. Get those stones. Bring them out. I want you to set those up. Those are to be a memorial. In other words, I want you to remember because what we're doing right now is symbolic. What we're doing right now is communicating truth to you 
and to your children all the way on down to us today of what it really looks like when I go before to give you your inheritance, to give you the promised land. So you pile those stones up and you remember. You remember the timing of God. You remember that you follow God. You remember that God is the one, that I am the one who initiates this and I do it in my power. First thing. Now the second thing comes right on the heels of this. And it's the angel of the Lord in chapter 5, verse 13. So they come through, as Israelites come through the water, they're now going to come to the first challenge, which is this walled, fortified city. Would have been one of the more fortified cities, would have been one of the more difficult cities, and it's the city of Jericho. And so it's basically coming to the first test of conquest. If we're really going to take this land, it's not just coming across a river, but it's displacing the people that are here. It's winning military battles and, and getting victories and beginning to take possession of this land. And here is this first symbolic challenge of a, a city that's behind kind of its fortified walls. So they're on the outskirts of this city. They're camped. They've got their fighting men. They've got everybody else. And they've got this challenge the challenge of how are we going to take um, this fortified city. And if you think about what that would look like, the, the, the wrestling, the strategizing, the sleepless nights, the wondering, the scenarios and role-playing, the differing opinions, the arguments back and forth, the preparations. And in verse 13 of chapter 5, in the middle of all of this, this happens. Now, jo when Joshua was, was near Jericho... When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant. So what's happening here is the prince of the host of Yahweh or the captain of the Lord's army shows up in Daniel, shows up in Exodus, shows up in a couple places in the Old Testament. It's a theophany or some would argue a Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. Um, but either way, what you see is the head of the host, the head of God's army, the head of those authorities is now showing up on earth and having an interaction with somebody. And this is what Joshua falls into. At first, he's kind of like the logical question. Uh, are you on my side uh, or their side? And he's thinking, he's thinking very small. He's thinking where we typically think. He's thinking that this whole thing with Joshua is about the strength of, or the, with Jericho, is about the strength of Joshua's army versus the strength of Jericho's army. I mean, that's, there's an equation, there's a math equation, there's a greater than or less than. There's all of this that he's calculating and trying to sort out. And so he immediately takes the angel of the Lord and wraps him into that equation. Do I count you or add you to this number? Or do I count you or add you to this? Are you with me or are you against me? And then the angel of the Lord says, neither. You're missing the point here. Your equation is below me. I'm coming as the captain of the Lord's army. 
your size, their size, you, them, is indifferent to me. It's not about which of you am I behind. It's which of you are on my team. And so Joshua falls down, face down, in reverence, recognizes the holiness of what's going on, the, the, the symbolism in the moment, and he says, so what's the message for your servant? Now, what do you think Joshua expected? I think Joshua expected the kind of thing I would expect. Um, here's, here's the kind of questions I ask God a lot. Um, God, uh, we need more infrastructure or leaders at the church. What's the strategy to raise up leaders in the church? How do I deploy things? How do I marshal the resources, the time, the energy, the staff at Antioch to raise up more leaders so that we can be more effective with what we need to be? God, uh, money, it's like every year we go four or five months and then we hit the crisis and then we go four or five months and then we hit the crisis and, and I'm, it, it begins to get old. It's old to me to like always have the money thing hanging. I don't feel like I have any chips in the bank with the congregation to talk about money. And, and in fact, God, the congregation you gave me, I don't think they have any money. They live in Bend. <clears throat> um, so, but we have these needs and so money's an issue. God, what's, what's the strategy? Who can I talk to? Who can I enlist? How do I word it? How do I surface it? How do I strategize around it? Can't I just make it the elders' problem? Um, um, my health. God, isn't there just the one food, if I just ate it every day, I'd feel better? You know, like, what is that food, God? What's that drink, and why can't it be coffee? And, like, just give me the strategy, give me the answer that I can plug into my mental scenario of what it is I need to accomplish. So, angel of the Lord, what message do you have for me? Do we tunnel under the city? Do we, do we blitz attack them? Is it uh, siege works? Ladders. Is there a special wood for the ladder? Is it, what, what is it? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your shoes. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And you begin to realize the idea here is less about the power, the latent power and potential in the strategies, in the maneuvering, in the answers, in the ideas, even in the creativity or innovation. But the answer is in the humility and the honor of God that it is in, in his strength that we seek our victories. That it is, in some sense, submitting and saying, I serve you. This is your battle, God. 
This is your battle. You're going to fight it. You're going to do it in your way. And I serve you regardless of what tactics or strategies or plans we're going to employ. But it's not about me. It's about you. So then God goes on and God says, coming out of this, here's how you're going to go into Jericho. I won't read it because it's long, but um, we kind of remember the story. Here's how you're going to go in. You're going to get um, the ark. You're going to get priests. They're going to have horns. You're going to walk around the city. Everybody's going to stand back. They're going to march in processional form, and you're going to march around the city, uh, and you're going to do that for six days. Uh, and then on the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. It's going to be a busy day, a lot of work, and you're going to do it seven times. And then the trumpets are going to blow. Everybody's going to shout. And, well, you know what comes next, right, Joshua? No. No, I, I actually don't know what comes next. What, what would logically follow that, God? <laughs> um, then, then what do we do? Um, Knit baskets? You know, I mean, it's like, I, no, I don't know what's going to come next. Uh, when you shout, I'll, I'll raise the city. I'll, I'll destroy it to its foundations. And then you're to go in, and you're not to take any of the plunder. None of it. It's all supposed to be for me. It's consecrated for the Lord's treasury. Now, here's the thing that we can miss when, when we're just reading it. It's like, um, God's some kind of warlord that's trying to get plunder or treasure. It's not the picture at all. The picture is about God creating a covenant community and planting them in an area and saying, I'm going to begin to cultivate what it looks like or, or should look like for me uh, as God to have a people in my name in this covenant relationship. That's what God's doing. God doesn't need th the plunder. I mean, all throughout the prophets, God's trying to say, look, I don't need food. I don't need drink. I don't need, I don't need your silver or gold. Matter of fact, take your incense away from me in Isaiah 58. If you're going to be praying to me, thinking you're going to manipulate me, but you're not even doing what I, what I want, right? So the plunder is not because of God needs more silver and more gold. Why, so why do you think God would decree it that way? Why is God really saying, now, when you go into that city... You need to realize right away, the plunder is mine. You can't take it. Why does God say that? Because of us. Because of us. If we go in and we start seeing things, what's the natural response of those Israelites? Is to start grabbing for it and to start competing with each other and to start fighting for it and to ultimately make it all about them and to lose sight of the fact that they are a part of what God is doing in his authority, his strength, for his purposes of having a healthy family. And so it's us that he's keeping the treasure away from. He says, so the treasure is going to be set aside. So this is what God tells Joshua. And I can only imagine going to a bunch of 20-somethings or 30-somethings, your, your generals, your lieutenants, your sergeants of your fighting men, and you sit them down, and you're having this council meeting, and you're going you're to tell them what the plan is, and this is what you tell them. Hey, guys, you're not leading the charge. The, the nerdy dudes with uh, the ram's horns are going to do it. They're, they're, they're in front. You're in, you're in back. And then, uh, okay, well, that's fine. So God wants to make a show of it. So when's it our turn? 
Yeah, yeah, not, not, not going to be your turn. What do you mean? Well, um, on the seventh day, I want you to shout really loud. <laughs> I mean, how does that go over with 20-something dudes or 30-something dudes that have grown up fighting? And over and over, you begin to see that what God has commanded here is driving home a message that it is not in your strength. It's not according to your plans. It is not your work. It's really fascinating that they do nothing for six days. Again, the, the work week, right? You work six days, and on the seventh you rest. It's God's day. So notice, notice this. So you're going to walk around for six days. That's your part. On the seventh day, you walk around, you shout, and God raises the city. On your day of rest, on the Lord's day, God does it. He himself does it. It's fascinating. They're going to battle against a walled city, and God says, instead of putting your hands on your weapons, I want you to put them on your worship instruments. I don't want you to fight them. I want you to acknowledge me. I don't want you to strive. I want you to submit. I don't want you to calculate. I want you to trust. I, I don't want you to labor. I want you to let me work. It's unbelievable what's going on here. And this is what happens. And so six days they go, seventh day goes seven times. They all shout. The city falls. They go in. Um, they take over the city. God has done it. So God went before them, stopped the river, symbolically says, you're calling my will for your life, the promises, the reason I have raised you up, where I intend to lead you, this lifelong thing from this point forward, I'm now calling you into it. I'm going before you into it. You better remember, set up the memorial. Now the first big challenge, guess what? You think you gotta make this hurdle? It's all downhill after this. This is the big symbolic thing that has to happen. Guess what? It's, it's, it's me, it's not you. All of this is me. It's not you. And this is what God does. So then the third thing, which comes next, is Achan's sin. Achan's sin. Achan is a guy. He's an Israelite. Um, and I'm sorry, this is the fourth thing. So we had the, the water, the river, the angel of the Lord, now the walls of Jericho. And the fourth thing is Achan's sin. So Achan's sin, if, if you look to chapter 7, what's happened now is God decreed you're not supposed to take anything. Achan takes some stuff. He takes some silver, he takes some gold, he takes some of the plunder. He hides it under the mat in his tent. He basically buries a, uh, digs out a hole in the ground, he buries the treasure, puts the rug back, if you will, hides it, but God knows what's going on. And so meanwhile, Joshua, fresh, fresh off victory, his men, fresh off victory, are all excited because it's happening. They've waited so long to see God move in this mighty way, and it's happening. And so they come up to this city called Ai, 
and Ai is smaller than Jericho. And so his men tell him, look, just send a couple thousand. You don't need to send everybody um, because we can go in there and rout these people. There's not many men, not many fighting men. And so they do. They send in a couple thousand, and the Israelites are, are decimated. They come back defeated. And Joshua, verse 6, tears his clothes, falls face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. He remains there till evening, and he begins to wonder, God, why did you even bring us here? Because now that we've shown weakness, now that all these other nations and tribes around here that we're going to have to do battle with, now that they smell blood, now that they know we can be defeated, they're going to come and pounce on us. The whole thing's lost. And Joshua begins to forget the lesson he just learned. It's not about your image, Joshua. It's not about your perceived strength or invincibility, either on your side or their side. Joshua, it's not about you falling face down after defeat. What happened to falling face down before you went to battle? It's not about recognizing me and, and, and bringing your case to me after in your confusion. What happened about bringing the need and the case to me beforehand for instruction? Because I could have told you what was going to happen. And so God begins to say, why are you face down? What's really going on here? Why are you doing that? I could not help you. Verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned, not just one person. Notice how God says Israel corporately has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen from me. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. They have you guys, all of you, have opened yourselves up to defeat because of the infidelity. You've broken faith with me. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So the fourth thing is this idea of Rolling into battle assuming that because you won one thing or because God moved one time, that now God is going to serve you. That it's all about you. I, I trusted God. God moved. We're doing great things. It's me and you, God. Have you ever felt like that? You know, it's me and you, God. We're going to go do this. And you go out and then you just get smacked. I used to do that. I think I've shared the story. I used to do that in grad school. I'd get my, um, the syllabuses the first week. And by the end of the week, you have that moment of like, holy cow, like, there's just no way. And then I'd get in my car, I'd put on some Metallica, and I'd be like aggressively wrapped up in the moment, and I'd start praying scripture, because that goes with Metallica. <laughs> and it's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'd, I'd be thinking that. I can do, we can do this. You and I, God, we can do this. We can, we can do all this school business, you know. Um, those academic nerdy types, they got nothing on me. I can do this. I can figure it. I'm not an academic type. Um, I, I don't fit in, in formalized school. And, uh, and then about three, uh, three, four weeks later, 
Fast forward about three o'clock in the afternoon on like a Thursday, I'd be walking out of the registrar's office, having dropped two classes, trying to think of all the good excuses for telling my family and friends and things like that. But I, I think we can begin to, to get wrapped up in our own sense of potential. And, and, and God has done a couple good things for us, and now it's like we can do anything, and we begin to get carried away with how we think it can go down. Or what we think we should tackle next. Hey, God, you and I make a good team. Hey, we should go do that. And then we run into it and we get smacked. And it's like, but it, was I doing the right thing in the first place? And not only that, but did I stop back and did I step back and go, it's not about this thing and it's not even about me winning. It's about God. It's the angel of the Lord. Whose side am I on? God, what's the lay of the land? And it allows God to speak into the equation and say, whoa, it's not time for anything. There's something big going down. You've got a character flaw. Or there's somebody that you've partnered with that you can't lean on. It's going to break. That stick's going to break. And the further you go before you address this issue, the worse it's going to ultimately get. You need to deal with it now. How do you put God first? How do you honor God first with everything? It's real simple. It's like, it's like the person who's so extroverted they don't let anyone else talk in a conversation. Don't do that. Give God a chance to talk in the conversation. L leave room for God to, to insert himself in and to say, look, stop talking. There's something I need to say. There's something I want to say. There's something you're not seeing. We're, we're not even having the right conversation. Ken, shut up. That, that's the first place to start in putting God first or in honoring God. And so the sin comes off. They have to address the sin. And then after they do, God says, now you can move forward. Now I can bless what you're doing. Now I can allow you to move forward in victory because you're not going to continue to veer and go in a different direction. There's something, again, symbolic about this. When you see in the book of Acts that God says, um, here, you know, the picture of the New Testament church, everybody's selling things, they're bringing their money, they're, they're like distributing it, everybody's got everything in common, it's this wonderful picture of what a Christian community can look like. And then Ananias and Sapphira sell land, they bring the money, they give it to the disciples, but they lie and they say, this is all the money we got for the land, but it's only a portion, they've kept the rest for themselves. And what they're really doing is saying, we're going to manipulate the spiritual community for a win-win here. We're going to join in on all this excitement and, and put something in it, and we're going to make it look like we're really, really, really important, valuable, um, God-fearing people by saying, look it, we're giving 100% of our income. But what we're going to really do is also keep some money because we, we want to buy some things, we, we got some stuff going on, and so we're going, to, we're going to do both. Won't this be great? We'll get all the credibility from the spiritual community, we'll still have some money. They go in and do this, and they God strikes them dead. And, and I've always asked the question, how come you don't see God striking people dead in the rest of the New Testament? You know what I mean? I mean, it doesn't seem to be a thing he's doing all the time. Why does he do it then? 
Because at the, form, at the formation, at the beginning of God doing something monumental, like bringing the people into the promised land, or bringing all these Christians or followers of Jesus into the New Testament church community, he does it very specifically to create the symbolism needed to say, this is serious, this is mine, it belongs to me, it's not to be trifled with, it's not about you. You can't lie or manipulate it and ultimately make it about you either. I value this thing. It has to last as an institution all the way into the future. So you're not going to play with this whole thing. The first town you took the gold. I'm not going to allow that. We're going to stop right now and deal with it. Ananias and Sapphira, you're dead. Because I'm going to make an example of you that hopefully others will realize the church is the bride of Christ. I mean, if we really understood that, what would our gossip look like about church? Or using our creativity or our way with words, it undercutting the church. Because when we undercut the church and we criticize it or find problems with it or second-guess things that we might not even have the full story on, we can do that so easily because, you know, we went through junior high in America. We figured that game out, right? We can do that so easily. And what's really the motive behind it is it's that the church is an easy target. And in taking advantage or, 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 or tackling it, I, f I look good. Um, I get to stand above it. I get to stand in judgment on it. I get to sound cool. I get to lead. I get to be the center of attention. I get to feel powerful, proud. So instead of submitting to the church or to church's leadership, I get to stand in judgment. And it's really, when I give full vent to that, something that's really about me. But in the process of exalting myself, I cheapen and I undercut an institution that God says is incredibly important and valuable and holy. Not perfect, but his. And so God uses Achan's sin, just like he did Ananias and Sapphira, to say, you're going to follow my instructions. We're going to get this right. And if we don't get it right, I'm going to have to stop you. It's like pulling over at the beginning of a vacation and telling the kids, look, this is going to stop now. This isn't going to continue. It's going to stop now. So where does all this kind of go? And I would say the application for us is first to realize the common thread in all these things. It is God who calls and goes before. It is God who does and ultimately is the one responsible for bringing you in and establishing you where you're supposed to be. It's the strength of God. It's the will of God. We submit to and follow God. It's not our own mental IQ, capacity, strength, energy, network, resources, but God. Unless the laborers, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. It's a scripture I keep coming back to more and more, but yet I still haven't Memorize it enough to get it right when I'm standing here. Um, lest the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. That ultimately, the, the beginning and the ending of this whole thing is asking, where is God in the equation? God does the work. Then with 
Achan's sin, we realize twofold that we can't just run casually in expecting the same results because God has done something for us in the past. But our relationship with God has to remain tight. We should fall face down before we go to battle, not after we get defeated. That we can't begin to compromise with the integrity or the holiness of what it is we're doing. There are rules. There are parameters. There are obligations. G.K. Chesterton says what's great about fairy tales is that there are absolutes that we just understand are absolutes and we don't argue with them. You know, at midnight, when the clock strikes midnight, the coach turns into a pumpkin. And no one ever goes, well, why is that? You know what I mean? Like, no one ever reads the fairy tale and says, well, that's dumb. Why, why is that? But the same is true, this is Chesterton's argument, the same is true about life. God says, that stuff, don't put your hands on it. You dedicate it and devote it and, and put it over toward me. It's mine, not yours. And, and that's an inviolable command. It's, it's simple. It's absolute. But yet in our lives, we go, well, that's dumb. I could do a lot of good with that money. Or there it is right there and I want it. Or maybe God didn't really mean it like the way he said it. Or God, God probably made that command about being sexually pure for those people, not me. Or, you know, I've got a high capacity for, for mud without it affecting me. I'm going to just let my eyes see whatever they want to see. Watch whatever I want to watch. Because, you know, I'm, I'm immune to that. It's, I, what does that even mean? It's not about how great a stomach you have for eating crap and still being able to not get sick. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a really stupid idea in the first place. But second, what about the commands? What about what God has said? What about what he's asked for you as you move into living a life of service to him where he's going to plant you, where he's called you, what his will is for your life? What about the parameters on that that we are going to honor God and, and submit to God and look to being faithful to this covenant we have? We argue with and wrestle and pick and choose in such a weird way. And I love Chesterton's thing. He's like, fairy tales can teach us something about rules that you, you don't argue with them. They're absolute. So I want to give you three areas of life that, that I would say um, we can explore with this. I'm going to draw this for you real quick because we have to understand what I'm talking about in terms of application. There's the three phases, the Egypt, the desert, and then the promised land. I'm talking right now about areas that resemble this movement in your life. I'm not talking about what faith looks like in Egypt, hanging on when, when you're being oppressed, uh, hanging on when you don't feel like you can hang on, crying out to the Lord, um, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about when you first become saved and you're in a desert and you 
everything's being upended. Everything that was from the former life is in some sense gone or lost and you're, you're trying to figure out what does this look like. I'm talking about this movement. I'm talking about things that would resemble or fit into this, okay? Marriage. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. It's moving into, by faith, a whole new reality that God has created or is creating for you. Do you understand the parallel there? Marriage is a lot like this movement into the promised land. Your career, especially if you see it as a career or you're making a career change or whatever it is, it's a movement into a place where God's going to have you for the long term. Having kids or choosing to have kids or choosing to adopt or whatever, taking on a whole new reality that's going to reconstitute what it looks like for you where you're moving into this this land and you're saying, how am I going to take hold of this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to be involved in this? Um, And then this question of that I think American Christians want to analyze more than I think most people, God, what is your unique, specific will for my life? What is your calling for me? Where are you going to take me? How are you going to use me? Uh, A quick caveat here, by the way. As I read the Old Testament, the greatest figures are not the Levites or the priests. Does that make sense? The ones who do the greatest things for God aren't the Levites or the priests. They're the generals or the political leaders or the poets even. Um, And so I grapple with that a lot because I think in American church culture, the heroes and the ones who do the greatest things are seen to be the pastors. And since that wasn't cool enough, we had to come up with this phrase called church planter because it sounds a lot better. And the church planters. But it's it's the spiritual dudes that get their living, their money from spiritual things. We've kind of made it look like those are the ones that are gonna do great things for God. I almost think we need to flip that and say, probably not. Probably not. It's probably some of you out there who are really ambitious because God created you maybe that way. Very strong, very assertive, very hardworking, very creative, very smart, very determined. And if you submit what God put into you to God, And allow God to use that. And you say, I'm going to apply this where you have me apply it. I'm going to take it where you want it to go. I think that's when you begin to realize that the magic happens and God does some amazing and great things in the world through non-pastors, non-Levites, non-priests. So the career thing is a huge one. And then I think resources Buying a house, buying a house is, some, is in some way a forever thing or a very long thing or it's a big thing that affects everything else or can affect everything else. And so we see some of these money decisions or life decisions, these forks in the road that when we come to them look a lot like this whole idea of moving into Israel. Does that make sense? And so I just submit to you that the whole idea of these five weeks is that we, we get this thing so wrong. You know, a Christian marriage for us has become this. It's, it's two Christians 
that are married. And then we wonder why it goes wrong. Why, why are they getting divorced? Why isn't it working? Because it's a Christian marriage. He's a Christian. She's a Christian. And do, do you understand how, how silly that sounds? That, that, that that's not a Christian marriage. A Christian marriage is a marriage where we honestly believe this guy, that God is calling or has given permission for him to covenant with this woman. And this woman honestly believes that God has called her or given permission to her to covenant with this man, believing that not the other person is perfect, so it'll always be easy, or that the other person will always be desirable because the covenant is about sickness or health, right? But the Christian marriage is one that understands because God has led me into this covenant that ultimately it's grounded in God and my faith in God and the strength of God and the ability of God and it's about God so that whatever the weakness in that other person or whatever goes wrong with that other person, there is sufficient enough grace in God that I can hold to my marriage covenant. Does that make sense? That ultimately a Christian marriage is not about the two Christians. It's about God. That God led them into it. That God is the, the priority and the head over the marriage. And that ultimately this thing is going to be successful because of the strength of God as these two individuals look to God. And so the whole marriage needs to begin to be patterned that way. The disciplines of the marriage need to be patterned that way of looking to God and not trying to change the other person, of submission, mutual submission and love, of having a child and holding the child out and saying, God, this child is yours. I dedicate this child to you and I hold this child with open hands because you know what, God? You and I could begin to compete over this child if I think this child belongs to me. If I have ideas for this child that might be different than your ideas for this child, and so I commit this kid, my firstborn, or my daughter, or my son, or my adoption, or the foster kid that I bring in, I commit that kid to you because you are over this marriage and I serve you and I trust you. And even if I'm lost and confused and have questions, I'm gonna look to you or I'm gonna continue to walk in faith because ultimately I know all is lost if I go my own way. That's a Christian marriage. And it's the same with a Christian career or a Christian calling or what it looks like to take your money and buy a house or whatever it is that it's God who goes first. It's God whose team we are on. It is God who raises the walls and does the work. It is God who has the instructions and the parameters and the obligations that we have to follow and not trifle with. And ultimately, it is God who will step back from us, discipline or prune us if we need to be redirected to stay faithful or to learn how to stay faithful as we follow him. So the last one in this series is the Gibeonite deception. And I find this one really fascinating. The Israelites, chapter nine, they were supposed to push out, wipe out, or displace whatever, all of the people of the land. It's very clear instructions. And so a group of 
people that knew they would be wiped out created a deception. We're going to travel to go see Joshua. We're going to take and make our donkeys look really emaciated and old. We're going to put old saddlebags on them. We're going to take wineskins that are cracked and weathered. And we're going, to, we're going to basically present ourselves as if we've traveled a long way. And so they do. They come. They look as if they've traveled a long way. Excuse me. Um, and they present themselves to Joshua. By the way, I love verse 3 of chapter 9. When the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. I, lo- I, love, that. I love that in Scripture. These guys are going to resort to a mind game. You know, they're mentalists or whatever. I don't know. They're going to resort to a ruse. So they come to Joshua, and Joshua says, how do I know you're from far away? What if, what if you're from close? I mean, Joshua's a smart guy. He's, he, he, he takes two seconds to analyze it and go, eh, what's going on? And then his men, verse 14, sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And as they sampled the provisions and said, wow, this stuff really does taste old, look old, feel old, appear as if it's old. Then they made a treaty. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. There's a whole different sermon that could be preached because the funny thing is, not the funny thing, um, the teachable moment is because they made an oath, they, they upheld it. They made an oath in the name of the Lord and God let them and they had to uphold letting the strangers be a part of their covenant community in some sense. Yet there were going to be consequences to it. But so I find it fascinating when the stakes are high, when, when the fireworks are going, when we know that the chips are, are on the table, the conversation is, God, how are we going to fight this battle? God, how come you didn't let us win this battle? God, whose fault is it? God, what am I supposed to do? God, why did you even let us come this way? But there's a lot of wrestling that goes on um, when you're staying up with sleepless nights because of stress. Does that make sense? When you're in the middle of trying to go, God, would you make this woman actually like me? Say yes and, and not have cold feet. You know what I'm saying? God, is this really the career Is this where I'm supposed to go? There's a lot of wrestling that happens in those moments. God, $200,000 is a lot of money. We're signing a contract here. What are we supposed to do? Um, After you get a couple victories, after you move into God's will for your life, after you move into that relationship with your spouse, after you move into that career, after things begin to get going, what begins to happen? we begin to just fall into handling things on our own. I got this. I can figure this out. I'm a good leader. I'm, I'm smart. I make good decisions. I know how to handle this one. Um, this isn't a big deal because it doesn't feel like a big deal, but we begin to take things casually. God gave a commandment to Joshua, don't make treaties with the people in the land. It was a severe command. It was an important command. And Joshua became casual with that command. He didn't stop and inquire of the Lord 
what was going on, what God wanted. He didn't put it before the Lord. He didn't treat God as holy. He didn't treat himself as being just a subordinate piece or part of the plan. And in doing so, he created a big problem and he made a huge mistake. And what I would say is, as we're ticking through life, most of us are not right now in the middle of crossing into the big promise. Maybe a lot of us are, maybe more than I realize, I don't know. But there are some, I'm certain, that are more in the routine part of what God's calling is for your life. And the warning about the routine part of God's calling for your life is that there are people that are gonna create ruses. There are situations that are gonna be not what they appear. There's gonna be stuff that you think you have sized up, but you really don't. And God is saying all along, look, it began with me. It was established with me. It was redirected and confirmed with me. So now, why now are you writing me out of the equation? You've been married seven years. Why are you no longer praying? Why are you no longer having spiritual conversations with your wife? You dedicated your child to me. Why are you not discipling that child? You dedicated this career to me. Why are you now playing the games of, of climbing the ladder or out-competing the competition and you're no longer even asking me what the whole point of this career was in the first place? You prayed and prayed and wrestled for money and that, that I would take care of you and so we figured that out and then moved you forward and got it all established. Why now are you not involving me in conversations about money or how to spend it or, or, or what you're supposed to do with it or what my ultimate plan is with you? You prayed for spiritual gifts. You asked me that I would raise you up, that I would give you wisdom or that I'd give you intelligence or creativity or capacity or opportunity, that I would make you somebody that had the ability to be significant. And I did. And I shaped it and we walked that road. And now, why now that you're somebody important, are you forgetting that I did all that? Why are you just running off with those gifts and those talents? Why are you using them only for yourself? Why have you stopped asking me what the point of all that was or, or what my thought or idea was in the middle of that? Why are you becoming casual? So I find that it's a fascinating thing that... We talk about being set free and salvation. We have such a salvation-centric focus in modern Christianity. Or we have this disappointment with God obsession. It's amazing that Americans are in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. I think it's actually like the top 0.5% of the richest people in the world, Americans. But yet we have this obsession with disappointment with God. You know what I'm talking about? It's like I could preach a sermon on disappointment with God every single week and you guys, I'm not, it's not about you. Americans would love me. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to, trying to create a distinction here. I'm talking about America in general. I would, be, I, would, I'd, I would be loved, which would be really nice. We have this obsession with disappointment with God. I, I don't think we talk that much about walking with God, co-laboring with God, serving God, submitting to God, letting God use us, ultimately being in the sweet spot as we move forward with our family, our life, our career, our church, our community, our resources, our gifts, our talents. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from this story 
of Joshua, Jericho, the angel of the Lord, Achan, Sin, and the ruse of the Gibeonites. And so I, I ask as we move into this series about walking by faith, that we would hold things open-handed and, and call God back into the equation, the God that goes before us, the God that does the work, the God whose team we need to be on, the God ultimately who's not going to bend on his commandments, his laws, his requests, his decrees, and the God that we please cannot in my life, because this is, like I said, I've been coming back to this for two months, because you know what? Um, I think fatigue becomes an excuse for being casual with God. I think it's the excuse I've been using. I think stress and whining about what other people are doing or not doing or what they're doing that's making your life harder is an excuse to become casual and sloppy with what we do on the side. So I hope this kind of helps frame it as we move forward. Next week, um, there's going to be an interview with Aaron Wells. Uh, we've got a, a, a mini sermon by, uh, by Luke. And then the following week, we're going to be talking about Abraham and Isaac and success and significance and sacrifice. And the following week after that, we're going to be talking about the paradox of power, what that really looks like in God's power over nature. And then the last week, we're going to be talking about faith and emotions, the paradox of fear. Because you know what? There's something really fascinating about fear. It's the thing that we, we act out of. Um, it's the opposite of faith. But then when you look at Jesus on the cross saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? You begin to realize in some sense, sometimes, fear is the fruit of faith. And that faith and walking by faith actually can land us in the middle of our greatest fears. And so it's this, there's a real paradox there. So we're going to finish talking about faith and emotions, the paradox of fear. And so I'm excited. I, I, would, I would love it if you guys would dedicate some time this month to joining one of the small groups we have, to beginning to read and to study or to pray and just commit a five-week chunk of your life to God to say, what can you do to renew a right spirit uh, or to help walk me into this will that you might have for my life. And then at the end of these five weeks, we'll join together. And I just pray that we'd be able to share testimonies that would be amazing. Remember how this passage started? The whole thing in, in Joshua, when they were going to go across the river, Joshua says to the people, God is about to do amazing things in your presence. God is about to astound as you move into this season. I pray that we'd be able to come together with a time of worship, honoring God, and hear that God is doing amazing things, astounding things in our presence. That's my prayer. Let's close, and then the band's going to come back out. Father, we commit, um, I don't know, I guess I can't speak for everyone else. God, but I commit this morning to you. I commit my desires to you. I pray that you'd purify them. I pray that they would be about you and not about some, some secret or hidden agenda that I've got for me. I pray for this time. I have hopes. I have aspirations. I feel like the staff and elders have prayed that we've wrestled with it. I believe it's something we have that we, we desire for you to be honored in, that we desire for people to meet and encounter and be changed by you in. 
So I pray to whatever degree that's true, that you would bless, that you'd move in mighty ways, that you would emerge as the central figure in this church, in our lives, and in this next season where we're talking about faith. I pray that our faith would be grounded in you and not in some kind of capacity that we have in our own strength. God, may you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.